0: All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store.
1: Hey, hey, what's up, my people? Hi, friends. We are here and we are Ergo. I am Damon. I am Kiss. And we got some more bonus content for you. We are pulling back the curtain.
0: So what we got for the people, Kiss? So a little while back, we had the opportunity to give a talk and a workshop as part of the Decolonial and Anti-Oppression Oral History Series at Columbia University's Oral History Master's Program. Uh, I know that sounds super academic. We also were like, oh shit, this is super academic. <laughs> so we actually like did a lot of work and uh, put together what we feel like is kind of the most clear crystallization of some of the politics that we've tried to grow into and that have emerged from the show in terms of how we do what we do. We thought it was just going to be a workshop for them. um, But in listening back, we felt like maybe it would be cool to share with y'all. We also think it could be a cool teaching tool. If you're working with students around conversation, dialogue, media making, even just the concepts of anti-colonial, decolonial, what does that mean in our lives? You know, it's relatively dense. It's a little bit different from how we normally do things, but we wanted to share it with you here and we thought you might find it interesting.
1: Yeah. For those who've you know, been deep listeners of Ergo, you may hear us reference that we do these workshops. One, bring us to your space oh, if you're course. interested boom boom we are here we are available uh, but we wanted to present some of this to y'all because like Daniel says it's, it's us really going deeper and talking about some of the thinking and intentions behind this show and behind this work but bear in mind like we said this was not designed to be some public published episode so it's you know it's us navigating the Zoom universe and the realities of what doing a conference virtually feels like. Uh, so it's not going to be like your your regular listening, but the we got uh, fewer I,
0: zingers, is what we're saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the the ideas and working with folks about how our work relates to the legacies of colonialism, neo structural oppression, and the mechanisms through which we work to build liberatory media and conversations felt really important and valuable, not only for us to crystallize for ourselves, but you know, we're all about transparency here and want to share it with our team. And that's you. You're part of the team. I don't know if you, if you were aware of that.
0: Yeah, I know that was an unappealing <laughs> intro that we just gave. I promise you it's better than all it's the dope. caveats no, that check we it just out. gave. Check it's a it good out. conversation. <laughs> no, really, it's good. All right, enjoy. And we'll be back with uh, some new episodes coming soon. Don't judge
1: us. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> good afternoon.
0: My name is Damon Williams. I'm Daniel Kisslinger, and we are so excited to be here sharing space with you all today. Um, of course, thank you to our interpreters uh, and to the program for bringing us in. And uh, we uh, it's been such a wonderful series so far, and we're so excited to to bring it home. We can start off by giving just a little bit of a framework of who we are and what we're hoping to do today. Um, so, Dan, you want to go first with, with kind of who we are and how we are coming into this conversation? Yeah, so together we've been collaborating for the past
1: six, going on seven years now uh, with the media project Ergo, which has emerged and grown into a, a new movement media hub. Uh, where we center around radical conversations with different cultural workers, organizers, activators, activists, activators as well, <laughs> e- educators, artists, um, and, and, and human beings and folks um, reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more
0: liberatory. So, on our show every week, we have a long form conversation with someone doing that work. And what's emerged for us over the years is that our work isn't just showcasing what other people are doing, but the space of the show and the space of media making conversation dialogue as a space for this uh, liberatory radical to the root and we would posit anti-colonial archive building work. Um, And so the goals for the session today with all of us here together is we're gonna define and and explore what that idea means, what it would mean to build an anti-colonial archive and we're gonna build some best practices for dialogue in our and your respective oral history and movement spaces.
1: We encourage folks, wherever you are, either to, to have some type of way to process. So whether that's a pen and paper that you use personally Or if you also want to use the chat or other um, digital word processors, uh, we we would encourage that as well. Um, And I say that because throughout this workshop or throughout the time we have together, um, there are five words that we've started off with that feel important to our conversation. Um, And with a little bit more time and space, we would probably do a communal defining exercise, uh, but we want to prompt and encourage folks to build their personal uh definitions on these five words and we will offer perspective throughout the workshop uh so number one being power number two being history number three being colonial number four decolonial and number five anti-colonial so throughout this conversation, we feel like it would be uh, valuable or um, of, of of power building, honestly, uh, for folks to define or come away with some intentional understanding of power, history, colonial, decolonial, and anti-colonial. Uh, and with that being said, I think we're gonna jump into our first group dialogue exercise
0: yes yeah, so whether it's in a workshop uh whether it's on air whether it's when we're in conversation uh in movement space uh there's a two-part question that we say every time it's become actually kind of a ritual for us and how we open the space um and so what we're going to do is we're going to move you all into breakout rooms um and all you're going to do is ask each other this two-part question and listen back for the response it sounds super simple in some ways, it is, and in some ways, you know, it can be more complex than that. But the the two part question is: in this time, however you define time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? So once you go into your breakout rooms, um, there'll be roughly five people for room each room. Um, you want to each have a chance to ask that question and each have a chance to answer that question as best you can. I know we have some studious folks.
1: In this virtual <laughs> audience. So if folks want some extra credit because Pace can move differently in different groups. So if you have some extra time, um, if you want to name what lineage informs how you're showing up to this space. So if there are any personal, cultural, movement, political lineages that inform your presence here, that's an extra credit question for the breakout. But that's only if you have time. You'll have about
0: six minutes loosely to uh, to move through it. So thank you all one for engaging with that exercise. I know in a, in a zoom space and with people you don't know, sometimes it can be difficult or feel difficult to turn to each other in that way. But I think in and of itself, that practice of like a humanizing question that's, and then showing that you hear hear the person is really at the core of our work. Um, And and I think, you know, it's beyond kind of the kind of like good feelings that it creates, though. Those are important. Uh, I think it serves as kind of a, an, an example of the larger political work that we hope to do uh, and that we're trying to do with our work. So maybe Damon can set the stage a little bit for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, and that question kind of as a tradition one, we want to offer that to you and your work and in your spaces of um, this dual relationship, because the, there are multiple ways in which folks can define the world. So you can get into the biggest political macro structures or like their day-to-day experience of of what is going on, you know, in, in the, the, the minute micro. Uh, so I wanna offer that as a space and as a relationship builder. Um, and then to transition, we just wanna share a few of our thoughts or learnings or reflections on anti-colonial history-making. And then we will offer a few of the practices that we've used on our project or in our media work uh, before we get into another group dialogue exercise. Um, so first, just want to name history itself don't want to like go past the basis of, of what brings us together the way we understand history making it, that it is in itself an act of power and for collective power we need to create space to create history co- collectively um, so history is not something that is just hap- happens. History is something that is made and the making of that is an act of power. And we want to do that um, in, in communal relationships. Uh, so making history to us just, here's one of these working definitions. We're gonna give you two back-to-back history and power. And this is how we think of, of this language. Making history is the act of leaving documentation for those to come after. And the act of making narrative for what has been left for you.
0: Yeah and to that point I think often uh, when people talk about historiography they focus a lot on the making of the narrative of what has been left um, and recognizing the subject position and the subjectivity of that work and sometimes we lose sight of how you know, it's kind of a, a, a process of dialogue that in order to make those narratives, you're working from the materials that are left. So the choices of what is left, what that documentation to build that narrative from, uh, we see that as an equal half of the, the, the dialectic of history-making.
1: And a space where communities can locate agency because we can choose what from our human experiences we want to document. And so from there, we are naming that process of documentation and naming and narrative building as history. And just wanna talk about power. Um, this is a matter of fact, I'll, as Daniel, as I kind of cited that we'll share it in the chat and it's a long version and I'll give you the shorthand when we finish. So uh, for us, a working definition of power is the means, access, positionality, and or relationships to harness energy, shape environments, assign value, set standard, define phenomenon, and determine lived outcomes. So I'm going to reread it and then shrink it. Power, <laughs> the means, access, positionality, and or relationships to harness energy, shape environments, assign value, set standards, define phenomena, and determine lived outcomes. So a shorthand—that's a
0: multi-clause sentence. thing. What, what, <laughs> yes. what are we getting at?
1: So, so we'll make that a little bit more concise. Of the means to determine lived outcomes, in thinking about media making, in thinking about organizing, in thinking about creating any type of space where human beings are interacting or there is a possibility for relationship, we want to always build our lens and our capacity to assess the ways in which the means to determine live outcomes shape the interactions between human beings. And so in our context, that can mean literally who's bringing the microphone, who's recording the files and editing and chopping, who is publishing, who is asking the question. Uh, And so often we take those means or that power as assumed. Um, and it is important that we always interrogate and wrestle with how that is shaping the interaction, the dynamics between people. Uh, and so within that, just want to I'm going to pass it back to Daniel, but I want to talk a little bit about how we're thinking about a notion of power today. So I want to get into some more of our words. Um, anti colonial, colonial, decolonial, right? Like this this kind of, you know. Kind of like the, the the hot topic out here in these radical streets these days. <laughs> like, every, <laughs> folks really are, are trying to, to to create a new language and a new um, trajectory to this lineage of colonialism and how it continues to sh- and neocolonialism and how it continues to show up in our lives and in our social and political structures. Um, and so, with that, just want to add that for us, um, decolonization is an ideal that we uphold devoutly. Obviously, we're here. Uh, But in terms of how we show up to our work, there's just a little subtlety or push that we want to offer in order to get to that ideal of the the power we see in an anti-colonial stance. Um, Because to me, for something to be decolonized, it means the removal. It means that colonial power is not impacting the space anymore. Um, And that doesn't feel like an honest, accountable alignment to our reality or naming of our position and our power and how even neo-colonial structures have benefited us, particularly as media makers and facilitators. And so always trying to, don't wanna cheat too far ahead, but always trying to wrestle with the contradictions of how we're showing up in this relationship to colonialism is really important. So for us, anti-colonial, which is the implication that we are an opposing force, to colonial power. So a little like analogy or metaphor that I'll use um, is, you know, there's a lot of language around how we respond to racism. Um, And I think particularly folks who are privileged in white supremacy and other, you know, anti-indigenous, anti-black systems. If let's say a white person showed up in a space and said, I am non-racist, I would probably, in my mind, I wouldn't do it out loud, but I would probably curse at that person. If that's in the space. <laughs> yeah, in the space, I might curse out loud. Uh, <laughs> but in my brain, I'm going to be skeptical of that position because that feels like it is lacking accountability. Um, but if someone were to say I am anti-racist, right, that does not assume perfection. That is not a... That does not assume uh, an absolute virtue signal to to us in our space. That assumes a, a commitment to a agreed set of practices that oppose the force of racism. So I think there's a similar relationship between nonviolence and antiviolence. I think there's a conversation we can have around non-profit to anti-profit, but that's a different workshop. Um, but in this space, uh, like decolonization is what we want for this land and what we want for this globe and for all people. And we feel that the ethic and the accountable methodology towards getting there is an anti-colonial space where you can have opposing force. Um, and all force does not have to be harmful. There's beneficial force. So for example, um, or Daniel, I think
0: you had a better example than I did. Can, 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 can I tag you in? Sure, yeah. I mean, building off of what Damon said, not only does it feel like not correct, it mostly comes I think from an acknowledgement of the limitations of our uh, ability and uh, force that we're able to enact now. For instance, in our media work, if we were to say we have a decolonial podcast, that would mean, to me, we are not participating in colonial structures in that, and that's just not true. Our microphones come from a company that's extractive. We're on Apple Podcasts. We speak at institutions. We take money through nonprofits at times. Um, that's a claim that we don't, in you know, good standing, feel comfortable making. But the claim of anti-colonial, meaning that in the work we do within all of those contradictions. We are working in opposition to colonial forces and to the implications of colonialism in our daily lives feels doable. And it feels like kind of a North Star to keep working toward. Um, And one way that we think about that is the difference between what our show is and what our show does. So our show is a podcast. If we build, you know, help people build another show, they're building a, a blog or a TV show or whatever it is. But what it does is this work of opposition, this work of reimagination, this work of space building, um, and that work has that anti-colonial ethos. Um, and and I think the best example, you know, we we got thinking about this deeper in preparation for this workshop because the language of decolonizing uh, is in the title. Um, and you know, as people doing movement work and, and facilitation, uh, most often the like. Visible sign of a of a decolonizing ethic is in land acknowledgments at the beginning of some work, um, and this is not to say that there's no value in that. Of course there is, and it's also not up to us to decide that. But one kind of provocation is what is left out of the story by that acknowledgement, right? You're acknowledging who has been harmed, displaced, the lineages that have been severed, but it doesn't acknowledge the lineages that enacted that violence and severing and domination. And so to do anti-colonial work, it means to acknowledge not just the effects, but the active actors and their lineages that are perpetuating those harms, because until we name them, we can't be in opposition to them. And so colonialism's aim is to sever these lineages and anti-colonial struggle as we define it is the collective demand and struggle to steward those lineages of other ways of living through those attempts to sever those lines. Um, And so that's the work that we try to do both on and off the air. Um, It happens in our media and interpersonally, communally, um, stewarding these lineages toward an anti-colonial future means honestly interrogating our personal, professional, communal and creative relationships to the project of colonization. If we can't do that on a personal level and on a collective level, we are not standing in opposition to colonialism. And we'll put that last sentence in the chat as well. I was I
1: was just on that. I had quotation marks ready to go.
0: <laughs> we need to. You need you to know it's quoted as well. Um, <laughs> and and so.
1: You know, we're, we're about to share some practices, but just off that last piece of stewarding the lineage towards an anti-colonial future means honestly interrogating your personal, professional, and creative relationships to the project of colonization. I also want to af- affirm that as a generative project, and it is not one of self-deprecation, or it actually doesn't limit us. Um, to the title of of our workshop of radical imagination that actually doing that work and stewarding those lineages creates the foundation and the possibility to imagine more holistic, more healthy, more just, more radical futures. Um, And so this is the methodology for the radical imagination. Oftentimes we just think it's just dreaming, uh, but if that dreaming is not connected to the reality of the lineages that put us in a space to dream, it will just stay in our heads. And so it is a really important practice that we wanna build. All right, I think we're about to pull up a slide for you visual learners. We're gonna offer six ways in which we attempt. To be honest, we feel like we do a good job, but we want to be accountable that we always have limitations and the capacity to fall short of these attempts. Uh, But these are the six ways in which we put this notion of lineage stewardship into practice on our work. Uh, Also, just a quick plug, Ergo radio on all streaming platforms and podcasts. <laughs> we are approaching our 300th episode. So we have, you know, have had that been in practice of hundreds of conversations and, you know, hundreds more off microphone uh, in this tradition.
0: All right. We also are embarrassingly terrible at plugging our own work. So that is maybe the first time in months in a workshop that we've actually said you can go listen to the show. Yeah. Yeah. A-I-R-G-O, wherever you get your podcast. Go get
1: some some examples of of what (laughs) we're about to share. All right. I think I'm going to go to number one, operating without being beholden to the traditional industries of knowledge production. That is a big one. Um, And so, you know, I think the institutions that we can name probably in the The intersecting connections we have in this space that I am assuming uh, would obviously be mainstream media and, you know, traditional news outlets, uh, the university and academia as a landscape and field. Um, And I would probably throw in a kind of like a a, a joint conjoined twin of the nonprofit industrial complex and the political parties. And I think, you know, we probably will have, I'm not going to assume, but both political or all of the established political parties in our space. So, operating without being beholden to those traditional industries. So, it's not again a virtue signal like absolute Purity, politic. Yeah, exactly. We, we may today, we have accepted an opportunity <laughs> to speak with Columbia University, right? And within all institutions, there are multiple people and multiple opportunities for relationships, but it's different when we are beholden to. And so, try to find space for your dialogues where the outcome the means to determine that outcome are not beholden or shaped, uh, shaped primarily uh, by the traditional industries or institutional spaces. So really creating
0: space outside of your institution if you have not already is important. All right. I'll pass Number it. two is acknowledging and creating within contradiction. The act of trying to flatten contradiction into binary, we mark as a colonial process. When we know in our lived experiences, in our movement work, in our creative work, we are constantly operating within contradiction. Um, You know, what does it mean to do this work within an institution? Um, What does it mean to aspire for an ideal in your work that you can't yet reach? What does it mean to say that you're trying to account for power and dialogue and know that there are limits to what you know how to do? There are all types of contradictions Um, And rather than saying that we've resolved all of them and we know how to do everything, we acknowledge those contradictions. We don't let them stop us, but we are accountable to them. We create within them.
1: Number three, naming, celebrating, and uplifting explicit experiments in liberatory community building as part of understanding abolition. So this is something that we do. So I invite you, I welcome folks to identify <laughs> as an abolitionist. Like it's it's really cozy over here. There's a lot of room left. We got a lot of a lot of seats available. Uh but but I don't want to project that onto the space. Um but particularly in, in our movement context, uh we have been um, documenting resistance work and particularly resistance work to carceral spaces. Um and what we want to push folks in oral work, particularly media work, uh is to not just document the experience or the harm, but to take on that responsibility of power of actually naming um, both the liberatory responses, but also how oppression is showing up itself. And so a lot of times... There could can, there can be a way in which we just like aggregate and have a dehumanized way to discuss oppression. Um, so, for example, it can be the statistic rise in incarceration numbers, or it can be um, the, you know, a, a popular adage when, when I was first getting into organizing is every 24 to 36 hours, a police officer or vigilante kills an unarmed Black person in the United States. Um, and within that, there is a lack of naming how and why that system is in the place to do that so there's a big difference between saying the police have killed people versus the police have been organized out of chattel slavery out of apartheid segregation out of a global colonial drug war in order to suppress populations and one of the tactics in which they do that is lethal force versus Let's just have a slideshow of all of the names that we want to remember, right? So we want to name the the harm, uh, but then also we get to that naming not through police records or not through um, looking at how institutions or other universities are uh, supporting the divestment from unresourced communities. We get to that conversation by uplifting and centering who are the folks that are resisting that oppression? What is the work that is making a state of freedom more possible? Um, And for us, the intersection of abolition, environmental justice, and independent communal art making have kind of been the triangle from which we have these conversations. All right, pass it to number four.
0: Also, I know we're throwing a lot at you. If you have questions, you can, of course, put them in the chat or we will also make a little space after we go through these before our next exercise uh, to answer any questions or hear whatever thoughts you have. All right. Number four, and this is less an on air in our practice, but more how we do the work we do. Um, We direct resources directly to community in ways that are transparent, grounded in repair and not contingent upon productivity or results. So, very often when it comes to whether it's oral history, documentary, research, journalism, there's this idea of participation and an extraction of their stories uh, of people who are either divested from and or in the work of rebuilding toward a more liberatory world. And what gets left out of that conversation are the resources uh, involved in that work and how those resources are being distributed. Um, And very often the people who are doing that work are underfunded and unfunded in the work they do while the people documenting that work or recording that work are funded. Um, And so we recognize as a central pillar of our work that we are in partnership with people in community doing this work. And as uh, equal partners, compensation should be equal. So when we build a project in partnership with a community organization for, you know for instance every penny that we get is matched to the people whose work we are documenting um, if that's not the case if we're doing other work uh, that's not with one organization all budgets are made transparent so people can see where the money that's coming in is going um, we in deciding who to work with and where to fund we um, we look at where the spaces where people have traditionally been extracted from and not funded and in a spirit of repair we come to them with this model and offer it and we pay them whether the outcome you know comes together or not so even if you know a project doesn't end uh, their payment is not contingent that that direction of resources is not contingent on productivity or results or a grant application you know or a you know set of deliverables We recognize their contribution regardless of what happens with the work we do together as worthy of being uh, resourced and recognized. All right, number five.
1: Number five,
0: grounding
1: work in relationships rather than access to structures of power. Um, So that feels pretty straightforward to me. I'll I'll give kind of the quick context and an example of what this has looked like for us. Um, And so our work is as we've said many times in relationship to movement, kind of like movement at large, but then also the capital M formal movement in our space. Um, So, you know, out of the the legacies of the movement for black lives and work around uh, opposing environmental racism and youth arts advocacy work, um, we have a distinct set of people and organizations that our work we hope benefits, but also is accountable to. Um, So one quick example of how that showed up for us is we had funding for a live event for a collaborative project we were doing, and we picked a really, you know, nice new venue um, that is, you know, somewhat of a public works project, but is mostly controlled by the University of Chicago here in Chicago, um, and a youth, women and femme-led organization called Asada's Daughters here in Chicago uh, felt that that space, symbolically and explicitly, uh, represented displacement in in the the community, and they were experiencing the impacts of many people that they organized with and on behalf of being pushed out of their neighborhood. Um, and so they named that it did not feel good or it felt hurtful or contradictory for us to bring a, a black youth led radical conversation into that building. Uh, and so it would not have been in our benefit, and they didn't really have uh, much grounding to make the ask outside of the relationships that they had to us and to our show. And so it actually, you know wasn't the easiest or took a lot of work um, and changed some of the production capacity of the space. But we then moved the event, and it was not on like, and then you have to fundraise or then you have to help turn out where there's any type of um, expectation out of that work. It is, our, our project is much more responsible to that relationship than the power that that venue and particularly like the departments of the university that fund that venue and program that venue, which that relationship got damaged. Um, uh, but, but it was like a worthwhile trade. All right, this is our
0: last one and we're, we're gonna do a quick check-in for any feedback. So number six and perhaps the most uh, ongoing Uh, and its implications, is attempting to account for colonial power structures implications in ourselves and in our dialogues. The central premise of our work and how we do what we do is that if we don't account for the way that structural power shows up in how we communicate with each other, then the worlds that we're working to build will contain those power inequities and those structural violences. So what that looks like is on air, you know, as two cis men for me, as a white man in these conversations, not that I am always able to see it or know it, but there is an attempt to account for the ways that how I engage in this radical dialogue, in this humanizing subject to subject dialogue, there may be ways that I enact power within that. And so the attempt to account for those and how we have our conversations makes possible the room in those conversations to build new futures. So if I was cutting someone off who was talking about the world that we were trying to build because I thought my thought was more important or I didn't know that I interrupted, then whatever we built out of that would have that power and balance built into it. Um, So that is the every day, every episode, every conversation attempt. All right, we threw a lot at you. I think we'll uh, take one second. And just if people have thoughts or questions or resonances, you can uh, put it in the chat, and we'll read it back, or we'll, or you can unmute, and we invite you to please share it with us. All right, all right. no pressure. I guess you got it. <laughs> um, and, and and again, good this job, Daniel. To... <laughs> right back at you. Um, all right, so now we're going to move, building off that last principle, to talking a little bit more about the ways that power does show up in dialogue. Um, You know, and we're here in this space talking about oral history, which we connect to other dialogue-based processes, um, but, you know, within the academy holds a specific role. And we will say that, we'll make the claim that the tradition of oral history in the academy, because it has not accounted for how power shows up in dialogue, has been a tool in the project of colonialism. One of the ways that that happens, um, there's a scholar named Eve Tuck. Uh, who talks about the the framework that most often is used when people are doing research, whether that's ethnography, oral history, uh, even uh, quantitative research, but especially in the interpersonal. There's this premise, if you're in a community that's been divested from, that this uh, person from a position of privilege coming into your community has the ability to take the story of that damage Share it and share it with people who will then direct resources to address your needs. Right? So, you know, if you live in an area where there's been toxic waste dumped and a researcher shows up and said, I want to study the toxic waste dump here. You go, okay, let me tell you about all the ways that that toxic waste dump has damaged us as a community. The idea is that then that person will take those stories and go, and hopefully sooner rather than later, that area will be repaired, remediated, and cleaned. However, what happens more often than not is that to the people who hear those stories in positions of power, that story of damage actually supports their white supremacist colonial ideas of who that harm should be enacted on. So if you're a poor community of color and you're talking about how your soil has been damaged to people in positions of power, they go, this fits how I think about that community. And so it doesn't actually challenge them to redirect resources. So, what Eve Tuck advocates for is shifting from this damage centered approach to a desire centered approach, because our desires can often be shared across uh, different uh, identities and relationships to power. So, if rather than saying the soil is damaged, you say, I want to grow sunflowers on my land, or I want to be able to feed my kids, or my kids want to be able to play, or we want to have a backyard that's something that resonates. It's humanizing and it can actually move people in positions of power more. Um, But very often the work of oral history, the work of ethnography focuses on the act of documenting the harm rather than naming how that harm is allowed to be perpetuated and then addressing the desires that aren't possible within the current system. So we are advocating for, in your dialogue and then in your work overall, an attempt to move those in power to action because of the recognition of shared humanity rather than uh, a documenting of the harm that's been enacted. So with that as kind of a
1: grounding or just a, a, a another note to, to inform our practices, um, we want to build a guidelines collectively in this space of best practices through um, folks sharing their experiences and from those experiences building out some of the patterns and shapes of how we want to facilitate communication and dialogue, particularly in oral history and or movement work. Um, And so with that, we want everyone to be prepared, if you could just take a deep breath before we break out, um, to locate within your experiences two dynamics that obviously relate to each other. One is feeling muted. So interactions, engagements, uh, where you felt or experienced or observed someone's voice being muted, particularly in oral history and or movement space. Um, So muted can mean uh, feeling less comfortable speaking, speaking with um, not as firmly as you would have otherwise, or not speaking at all. Uh, And on the other hand, we really wanna learn from amplification. When voices are expanded, push forward, um, made to take up more space when appropriate. Um, and so we want to ask you, or we want you folks to ask each other a few questions. Um, when are moments of feeling or ex- observing being muted or amplified in conversations within your work? What happened in those moments? What created that dynamic? Were there verbal cues? Were there nonverbal cues? Was there something in the space? Is it technological? Is it physical? And what are some specific practices that can be done as question askers to amplify rather than mute accounting for power? So what we're going to do is we're going to get back in our breakout groups that we were in earlier, but we want folks to go around and share moments that they experience or observe muting amplification. And then from that, what happened specifically? So what was happening in that dialogue? And then three, from those specific occurrences, um, can we build practices as question askers that amplify rather than mute? And so if we share that list together, this is also being recorded, so we actually have the possibility to just chop that list, and then we have our own document around anti-colonial history making uh, and dialogue practices that can be archived. So we can be doing some of what we're talking about here today with our shareback. So with that being said, let's get into our groups. So for the sake of time, I think I want to recap what we've collected so far. And this is this is a dynamic and robust list, uh, as a as a fan of list. And I also want to shout out Daniel. Uh we just found this whiteboard feature earlier today. So he just was was learning it in real time. And I I really appreciate him doing all that transparent (laughs) typing in front of y'all. That that was an act of courage. Uh, So to to just recap, some specific practices that we identified as what can be done as question askers to amplify rather than mute while accounting for power uh, and in no intentional order. Uh, Don't be afraid to dig into what's at the root of a moment of disconnection, slow down, account for time transparently, don't be afraid of conflict and disagreement, be flexible, push towards transparency about methodology and really overall, but also specifically about our needs and limitations as question askers, create space for a full range of emotions, which could be informed by a somatic awareness of how discomfort emerges in our own body as question askers, as well as in who we are communicating to, um, communicate discomfort when present. Energy shift towards lightness to rebuild after moments of discomfort. Uh, leave space between responses and next questions, and build and practice while still accounting for harm. Uh, so that's a really rich list, and I I, I always look for an umbrella, overarching tie through thread, and and what I'm really hearing or feeling from what we came up with together uh, is how do we, while accounting for power, offer space for the folks we're in conversation to have more agency to shape that conversation. So we don't want to just be objectifying people into passive responders. Uh, We want to actually create space for folks to shape what they are participating in, uh, which, you know, speaks to self-determination as like a, a central human quality and also paramount to all liberation work. Uh, so I want to just applaud if you want to like do that to yourself, like us as a group for making this really dynamic list and also want to connect with the, the, or the facilitators, organizers of the conference to make this accessible to folks to come back to. But, but with that, we have a closing exercise with our last five or so minutes, um, which is really a prompt to you And so if you want to meditate on it, if you want to jot it down shorthand or maybe journal real quick, or if you want to just breathe for for 30 seconds and you can raise hands and share, Uh, we have two questions from our conversation or from our exercises that we want you to kind of leave this space answering for yourselves. And we want to make some space to get some of the responses if if time allows. Um, So building off that list, question one is what does it mean to put these tactics into practice in your space? And then secondly, it's kind of a two-part question, with these tools, what are conversations that you could commit to stewarding in your space? And what colonial structures do you feel more equipped to challenge through these conversations? Answer this now, but continue to answer this in your work.
0: I wanna name what was uh, shared in the chat also, which is, feeling more equipped to challenge colonial structures that limit acceptable feelings and ways of communicating. Mm. I think that's a central point. I love that to what we've been trying to say is that the structures of dialogue limit our capacity to recognize each other's humanity. And so by creating that space for people's full humanity and acts of dialogue, that in and of itself is a anti-colonial act. Thank you all so much for spending your Friday afternoon with us. It's been such a joy to learn from you um, and the work that you're doing. Thank you again for having us. Thank you to our interpreters uh, for their tireless work. Yeah, Thank you so much. Almost forgot. Feel free to
1: check us out at Ergo Radio (laughs) on all platforms if you want to stay connected or or hear our voice a little bit more. But Much appreciation for for all of the, the, the loving participation.
0: Yeah, we look forward to continuing to be in community and and doing this work together.